Hey guys, first off, sorry about this episode being a little late. Um, I needed a break uh, in order to work on this because it was some pretty heavy material and I wanted to get it right. So uh, it should be dropping March 2nd. The next episode will drop two weeks from that, March 16th. So just to let everybody know. And I should probably say ahead of time that we will have to take a hiatus sometime between April and May for one or two episodes. And I will let you know those dates as soon as I have them together. Also, this episode breaks our rule for post-1918 content. Namely, we don't do that sort of thing, but this is an exception, and I think when we get into it, you'll understand why. And finally, Katie will give her discretion that she normally gives at the beginning of an episode that this is going to feature some violent and disturbing content. I'm going to double down on that and say that this is not an episode for the lighthearted. It's not entertaining. It's probably interesting. But while I won't be the one who tells you how to consume your podcasts, this is one that if I was listening, I would carve out some quiet time to listen and meditate. This doesn't have any breaks, no ads, no theme, so we're going to get right into it. Today's episode is taken from the work Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland by Christopher Browning. This episode contains violent material, including towards women and children. Please use discretion before listening. Why do I study history? Because I'm human. History is the story of humanity as a whole. It's also the story of humans, people. You can study it at the macro-civilizational level. You can study it at the micro-individual level. When you do you find that people are universally boring. They all do the same routine. Eat, drink, sleep, work, talk. Their expressions of their routine might seem different than their neighbor. They go to bed at 7, their neighbor does at 9, they're married, they're divorced. But pulling back to a cultural level, their routine is not much different than their neighbors. They all work in similar fields, similar jobs, they shop at the same places, they watch the same channels, root for the same teams. For people in the melting pot, like the big cities, that probably doesn't seem as clear. There are plenty of cultures in a big city, but having lived most of my life in that sort of culture, it's its own culture too. My point is, it's very easy for us to gloss over how similar we are to everybody else who has ever lived in order to emphasize what makes us different. Because we all want to be different. We all want to be the protagonist of our own story. We are the protagonist. Everybody else is either bit players or we're part of an ensemble. We forget that we're ordinary. It's truly rare in our lives that we face an extraordinary choice. To pull from the Sopranos, um, quote, fucking scary thing about it, you don't know what happened until after the shot is fired. And I guess you'll never hear it coming when it's your turn. End quote. The extraordinary choice is that shot that we don't always see coming. July 13th, 1942, Poland. It was still dark as the men of the Reserve Police Battalion 101 sleepily piled into the trucks to take them to their newest assignment. They were older men. The average age was 39. Working, lower-class men from Hamburg. Almost none of them 
had ever seen combat. Those who had hadn't done so since 1918, at the end of the Great War. Most of the reserve battalion had no real combat at all. Their job was to sit on occupied land, thousands of miles from any of the fighting, to keep the peace. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary that day. It was a routine trip. They were given extra ammunition and told that they'd see their first major action. Of course, they're in the middle of Poland. There's no enemy in sight. Major action was likely some sort of guard duty, daily patrol, maybe perhaps expelling some Poles from their homes, but not any real violence. They drove for two hours on gravel roads and out to a field as the sky began to brighten. A few hundred yards away were white houses with straw roofs. This is the village of Josephow. They climbed out of the trucks and circled around Papa Trap. Major Wilhelm Trapp was 53 years old, a career military man, and veteran of World War I. That's why they called him Papa. He was as grizzled as a bunch of old dogs like them could be, having earned himself an Iron Cross. But today, he was pale. He choked back tears. His voice quivered. He told them that he did not like this mission. He was against it, but the orders came from the top command. Besides, he told them, remember that while they were here in Poland, their wives and children were being bombed by the Allies. Over in yonder village were 1,800 Jews. Their mission was to round them up. All the men would be separated and taken to a work camp for hard labor. The women, children, and elderly were to be shot on sight. That was the job of the Reserve Police Battalion 101. And if any of the older men in the battalion didn't feel up to the job, they could step out. Five hundred men stood still. Then one man, Otto Julius Schmeich, stepped forward. Immediately, one of the captains began to berate the man, but Major Trapp shushed them. Ten more men came forward. All of them turned in their rifles and awaited his instructions. Four hundred and ninety men remained. Trapp gave his orders to them. Third company was to surround the village and shoot anyone trying to escape. They would round up the Jews and take them to the marketplace. Anyone who resisted or was too weak would be shot where they stood. First company would form the firing squad in the woods. Second company would shuttle them from the marketplace to the forest and trucks. Trapp then disappeared to a schoolroom he had converted into his headquarters. He never witnessed the consequences of his orders. He was heard to say, quote, Oh God, why did I have to be given these orders? One policeman recalled, quote, Today I can still see exactly before my eyes Major Trapp there in the room pacing back and forth with his hands behind his back. He made a downcast impression and spoke to me. He said something like, Man, such jobs don't suit me. But orders are orders. Another man remembered, quote, Trapp? Finally alone in our room, sat on a stool, and wept bitterly. The tears really flowed. Trapp himself told his driver, quote, If this Jewish business is ever avenged on earth, then have mercy on us Germans. But, as one policeman made clear, quote, Major Trapp was never there. Instead he remained in Josephau because he allegedly could not bear the sight. We men were upset about that and said we couldn't bear it either. End quote. 
but they had made their choice. Their company spread through the town. Soon the sound of single rifle shots rang through the air. So did the screams. It was a small town. Everybody could hear everything. As they made second and third passes, they admitted seeing some corpses. Very few, though, admitted they actually fired a shot. Everyone interviewed universally agreed that they never shot infants or small children. One noted, quote, Even in the face of death, the Jewish mothers did not separate from their children. Thus, we tolerated the mothers taking their small children to the marketplace in Josephau, end quote. But that just meant that the first company would have to be the ones to execute them. In the woods, they were given instruction on how to properly execute a person. A policeman noted that the battalion doctor and company's first sergeant explained to them, quote, I remember exactly that for this demonstration, he drew or outlined the contour of a human body, at least from the shoulder upward, and then indicated precisely the point on which the fixed bayonet was to be placed as an aiming guide, end quote. It would be right at the base of the neck. The barrel would cut through the medulla oblongata and the cerebellum, the intent to be to kill them instantly. 300 Jewish men were separated as work Jews to be used as craftsmen for the Germans. They were marched away on foot. The first truckload of Jews arrived, about 40 of them. Each elderly woman or child was paired with a policeman and marched away to a spot already indicated by Captain Wolhoff. The second group to arrive was taken to another spot farther away so they would not see the corpses of the first's execution. Wolof continued to find places farther away so no one group would see what had occurred. Sensing what was about to happen, some of the men of the first company tried to get out of the duty. Several policemen approached First Sergeant Kammer, asking for a different assignment. He agreed and gave them guard duty along the truck route. Others hid in the Catholic priest's garden or jumped onto trucks going to pick up Jews. Others stayed in the marketplace on guard duty, or searching houses over and over to avoid being assigned to a firing squad. Some went to Captain Wolhoff, pleading to be let go from the duty, as they were fathers. He responded that they could lie down with the Jews on the next trip if they so wished. Those who stayed took their paired Jew to the assigned spot. They ordered them to lie in a row, face down. The policemen stepped behind them, placed the bayonets on their backbone above the shoulder blades, and fired together. It soon became clear, though, that the killings were not moving fast enough. Some men from 2nd and 3rd Company were added to the groups, but they were not given any training on how to shoot the men. Consequently, they ended up often missing, wounding their victims, or creating a bloody mess that showered everybody with blood and bone. In the words of one 2nd Company man, quote, At first we shot freehand, when one aimed too high, the entire skull exploded. As a consequence, brains and bones flew everywhere. Thus, we were instructed to place the bayonet point on the neck. End quote. But this, too, helped little, as Hergert from Second Company noted. Quote, Through the point-blank shot that was required, the bullet struck the head of the victim at such a trajectory that often the entire skull, or at least the entire rear skull cap, was torn off, and blood, bone splinters, and brains sprayed everywhere and besmirched the shooters. It hung on their clothing. End quote. Quickly, the number of men excused from duty skyrocketed. 
Many men could only perform one or two executions before their nerves were done for. August Zorn recalled for his first execution, quote, The man could not or would not keep up with his countrymen, because he repeatedly fell and then simply lay there. I regularly had to lift him up and drag him forward. Thus, I only reached the execution site when my comrades had already shot their Jews. At the sight of his countrymen who had been shot, my Jew threw himself on the ground and remained lying there. I then cocked my carbine and shot him through the back of the head. Because I was already very upset from the cruel treatment of the Jews during the clearing of the town and was completely in turmoil, I shot too high. The entire back of the skull of my Jew was torn off and the brains exposed. Parts of the skull flew into the sergeant's face. This was grounds for me, after returning to the truck, to go to the first sergeant and ask for my release. I had become so sick that I simply couldn't do any anymore. I was then relieved by the first sergeant. End quote. One man shot ten men and women, but was relieved from duty as he kept nervously jerking his rifle and shooting past them. Others wandered off after their first or second execution. Some hurried through so quickly with each execution that they killed twice as many men as those who delayed. As the work Jews continued to march off, they heard the first salvos ring out. Quote, A grave unrest grew amongst these craftsmen, and some of the men threw themselves upon the ground, weeping. It had become clear to them at this point that the families they had left behind were being shot. End quote. George Kegler conversed with his victim as he led them to the site. It was a mother and a daughter. They were Germans, from Castle, near where he lived. After their execution, he couldn't go through it with it anymore. Another man's first Jew he shot was a decorated World War I veteran from the German city of Bremen. The man begged for his mercy. Another man asked to be relieved, quote, "'Because the man next to me shot so impossibly.' Apparently, he always aimed his gun too high, producing terrible wounds on his victims. In many cases, the entire backs of victims' heads were torn off, so that the brains sprayed all over. I simply couldn't watch any longer. End quote. Franz Kastenbaum originally denied killing any Jews, but later he appeared at an office and confessed to killing four men. On the fourth man he missed, became sick, and ran away from the firing squad. Quote, I ran into the woods, vomited, and sat down against a tree. To make sure that no one was nearby, I called loudly into the woods because I wanted to be alone. Today I can say that my nerves were totally finished. I think that I remained alone in the woods for some two or three hours. End quote. He said that he had come forward because he could not live with concealing the shootings. Many of these initial dropouts occurred in the beginning, for the rest of the men, they rotated with many cigarette breaks in between. Soon, alcohol was passed around. By 9 p.m., 17 hours after their arrival, the shootings were finished. The bodies were left out in the woods. The men, covered in blood and bits of flesh, collected themselves onto the trucks. Before they left, a ten-year-old girl appeared from the woods. She was bleeding from the head. Major Trapp held the girl in his arms and said, You shall remain alive. Quote, when the men arrived at the barracks, they were depressed, angrily embittered, and shaken. They ate little, but drank heavily. 
generous quantities of alcohol were provided, and many of the policemen got quite drunk. Major Trapp made the rounds, trying to console and reassure them, and again placing the responsibility on higher authorities. But neither the drink nor Trapp's consolation could wash away the sense of shame and horror that pervaded the barracks. Trapp asked the men not to talk about it, but they needed no encouragement in that direction. Those who had not been in the forest did not want to learn more. Those who had been there likewise had no desire to speak, either then or later. By silent consensus, with Reserve Police Battalion 101, the Josephow Massacre was simply not discussed. The entire matter was a taboo. But repression during waking hours could not stop the nightmares. During the first night back from Josephow, one policeman awoke firing his gun into the ceiling of the barracks. End quote. How does one go from being an ordinary man to a killer of dozens of men, women, and children? I think we all want to believe that some men or women can't stoop that low. That maybe it takes multiple actions. Maybe it takes months or years. Like the Walter White scenario, the slow snowball of poor decisions to bad decisions to evil ones. But the reality is, all it takes is one bad day. One bad choice. One bad choice is what faced 500 men at Josephow. They were given a single moment of opportunity by Major Trapp to react. Only a dozen men reacted instinctively by stepping out of line. And that's not to say that the other men regretted their actions. As we see, many of them could not follow through the whole day. They found ways to disobey orders or to sneak away. But most didn't. Time is a factor we rarely consider as part of our decision-making process. When we run scenarios in our head, we often give ourselves entire minutes to play it out. You know, so what would I do in this case? House catcher's on fire, where do I go? If an armed intruder bursts into my bedroom, how do I reach the gun? We always give ourselves the best-case scenario. We rarely consider the worst, and when we do it, it's with the advantage of time. But when you're put in a situation, and you don't have time to think, that's when our instinct kicks in. So what does it say that only 12 men had the instinct to immediately, irrevocably say, this is wrong? And there's a lot more at play here, don't get me wrong. For one, you look like a coward in front of all of your men if you step out. Many of the interrogated policemen later said that's why they didn't want to step forward. These are exact quotes. Quote, Who would have dared to lose face before the assembled troops? Another one. If the question is posed to me as why I shot with others in the first place, I must answer that no one wants to be thought a coward. And at least one policeman was honest. He just said, I was cowardly. Then there's the problem of having to make your decision to the major of your company and not knowing what the consequences are going to be. I mean, is he going to take you out with the rest of the Jews to be shot now? You don't know. A lot of the policemen voiced a concern about not thinking that they actually had a choice in the matter, that the structure of the military meant they had to follow their training. And this probably sounds similar to things that you've heard before, the whole, I was just following orders as a rationale for Nazi behavior. You know, though, a rationale that's really similar? I feared for my life, so I had to do it. Now, I'm not saying that isn't a real subjective feeling, I think it is, but let's call it what it is. It's cowardice. And I'd be a coward too. 
I want to be one of those dozen men who have the instinct to step out of line. I don't think I would be. And what does a man do when they realize that their instinct has led them wrong? They rationalize. Quote, A few policemen made the attempt to confront the question of choice but failed to find the words. It was a different time, a different place, as if they had been on another political planet, and the political values and vocabulary of the 1960s were useless in explaining the situation in which they had found themselves in 1942. One officer said, I thought I could master the situation, and that without me the Jews were not going to escape their fate anyways. Truthfully, I must say at the time we didn't reflect about it at all. Only years later did any of us become truly conscious of what had happened then. Only later did it first occur to me that it had not been right. End quote. One man even rationalized that what he was doing was a service. Quote, I made the effort, and it was possible for me to shoot only children. It so happened that the mothers led the children by the hand. My neighbor then shot the mother, and I shot the children that belonged to her. Because I reasoned with myself that, after all, without the mother, the child could not live any longer. It was supposed to be, so to speak, soothing to my conscience to release children unable to live without their mothers. End quote. And that German word for release is the same as redeem, to save. Of the men who stepped out, many of those men couched their refusal in more than just ethics. Two men cited they were not career policemen, so refusal meant that they wouldn't suffer any consequences to their career. One businessman explained how, quote, through my business experience, especially because it extended abroad, I had gained a better overview of things. Moreover, through my earlier business activities, I already knew many Jews, end quote. Most of the policemen admitted they were sickened by the shootings. They were physically repulsed, but they didn't expect ethical reasons behind why. Browning points out that these were not the best educated men, that they might not have had or made the connection between human instinct and their physical repulsion. But that also meant that when it came to their ethical instinct, the part of their brain saying, this is wrong, that was overruled by some other instinct in them. Survival. Shame. Even when we factor in the men who left the firing squads, we don't get any more than 10 to 20% of the men who made any sort of moral decision to stop what they were doing. That means that the vast majority of men, 80 to 90% of them, finished the day from dawn to dusk killing innocent human beings. Let me be clear. These were men who regretted their actions, who were bitter who resented the high command for being given these orders. They were men who were haunted by their actions, completely demoralized by them. They were horrified at themselves. But that doesn't change their murders. It doesn't bring the dead to life. And they knew that. Now this episode could end here. Here's your moral lesson. Enjoy the day. It doesn't. If you killed a few dozen women and children... Their blood soaked into your clothes, bone fragments on your skin, in your hair, knowing you would be haunted for the rest of your life for your actions. Do you think you'd do it again? That's a real question, because honestly, one bad action doesn't flip a switch in a person from good to evil. One bad day can. Even one as awful as this, though. 
I'm not suggesting that these men couldn't be redeemed for what they'd done. But, what would make you do it again? That's the question facing the High Command. From their point of view, Reserve Police Battalion 101 did their jobs. They wiped out Josephow. But it's obvious that it's traumatized the men, demoralized the whole group, and you still need them to participate in more killings. So how do you go about convincing men to do it all over again? You might just think that you just threaten them, right? But that doesn't work long term, and High Command knew that. They understood that Battalion 101 needed a carrot, not a stick, if they were going to carry this out long term. So they made a very, very simple decision. They gave them distance from the killings. On August 17th, 2nd Platoon was assigned to Lomazi to resettle the 1,700 Jews there. Just like Josephau, they were there by dawn and assembled the Jews in the courtyard. Like before, the frail and young were shot on sight. However, this time the NCOs were told that a group of Tronikis, also known as Hiwis, POWs from the Soviet territory trained as auxiliary troops, would do the actual shooting of the majority of the Jews. When the few dozen Hiwis arrived, they immediately began downing bottles of vodka. So did the German NCOs. As some of the Jews dug a mass grave for themselves, the men became extremely drunk. This was itself a tactic, as one policeman noted later, quote, Most of the other comrades drank so much, solely because of the many shootings of Jews, for such a life was quite intolerable, sober. End quote. Once the grave was dug, all of the Jews were marched to the site in order to undress. The drunk men, particularly Lieutenant Nade, an anti-Semite, began to treat the Jews viciously. Quote, Nade made the old men crawl on the ground in the area before the grave. Before he gave them the order to crawl, they had to undress. While the totally naked Jews crawled, First Lieutenant Nade screamed to those around, Where are my non-commissioned officers? Don't you have any clubs yet? The non-commissioned officers went to the edge of the forest, fetched themselves clubs, and vigorously beat the Jews with them. End quote. He then began to chase them into the grave, where the Hiwis were waiting against the walls of the grave. Three sides of it were massive walls, and the fourth was an incline that the Jews had to run down. At first, they were being shot at the slope, but quickly it began to clog with corpses, and more Jews were sent in to clear the entry, and then they were shot themselves. Quote, the Jews who followed had to climb on and later even clamor over those shot earlier, because the grave was filled with corpses almost to the edge. End quote. Groundwater and blood began to creep up to the knees of the Hueys. They continued to drink, and soon were so inebriated that the German NCOs brought their own men forward to continue the shooting. They stood at the edge of the pit, rather than in it, continuing the massacre. One NCO stated, quote, The groundwater already stood more than half a meter. Corpses already lay, to be more precise, floated, all over the grave area. I remember as especially horrifying that large numbers of the Jews who were shot had not been fatally hit during the execution, and nonetheless were covered by the following victims without being given mercy shots. End quote. After two hours, the Hiwis returned and took over. When the shooting was finished in the evening, quote, the work Jews that had been kept aside covered the grave. The work Jews were then shot as well. The thin covering of the overfilled grave continued to move. 
end quote. So you want to know how to turn an ordinary man into a killer? Psychological distance. There's a really famous argument by Peter Singer, a philosopher, about poverty. He states that if a child was drowning in front of you, most people would rescue the child from the pond, even if it meant ruining their expensive clothes, because inherently we value human life. But when a child is dying in a third world country from famine, if we didn't take the money we spent on clothes and donate it to charity to help that child, aren't we valuing that human life less than the drowning child in front of us? Even though the consequence, saving a human life, is the same? I actually don't agree with Singer's premise, but he has a point that psychological distance from a moral problem allows us to dismiss it more easily in turn. The greater the distance, the easier it is to convince ourselves that the action we take in one moral question can be different than another similar problem, even if the outcome is the same. In this case, the outcome is the death of 1,700 human beings. But the men of the second company didn't report nearly as much trauma as before. For one, the Hueys did the vast majority of the shooting. The Germans didn't have much of it at all. Just round up the Jews, kill the occasional elderly person. The consequence was the same. Jewish people died. They had a hand in it. But because they didn't do most of it themselves, they were willing to go along with it. And when they did have to shoot, many of them were drunk. Those that didn't, or weren't, didn't have to kill the victims personally, face-to-face, -face, but rather indiscriminately in this pit. It's like a mass of people that you can depersonalize. As well, they rotated shooting, so no one had to shoot longer than anybody else. And they were offered frequent breaks. But they weren't offered a choice this time, like Major Trapp had offered them. And finally, they had already killed once at Josephow. The worst shock was over. Browning concludes, quote, Like much else, killing was something that one could get used to. End quote. High Command began to put even more distance between the police battalion and their killings. In July of 1942, trains began to run to Treblinka, the extermination camp closest to them. It was the ultimate distance one could create psychologically, a factory for killing human beings, in the most depersonalized way possible, by forcing them into gas chambers. It was completely clinical. Humans went in, a few minutes later, the doors opened, and only bodies remained. They were disposed, and the process continued. By August, the police battalion's main role had become rounding up Jews and loading them onto the trains for deportation. As they rounded up Jews in towns and villages, they still had to kill the eventual elderly who could not keep up. Otherwise, they simply loaded up the Jews and on they went. Make no mistake, the police battalion knew what was going on. Quote, it was clear and well known to us all that for the Jews affected, these deportations meant the path to death. We suspected that they would be killed in some sort of camp, end quote. But out of sight, out of mind. That's not to say they didn't observe moments that stood out to them. One guard remembered, quote, When it didn't go well, they, he means the Hiwis, would make use of riding whips and guns. The loading was simply frightful. There was an unearthly cry from these poor people, because ten or twenty cars were being loaded simultaneously. The entire freight train was dreadfully long. One could not see all of it. It may have been 50 to 60 cars, if not more. After a car was loaded, the doors were closed and nailed shut. End quote. 
the ratio of those shot versus those in the car varied between 2 to 9%. But in just his single day alone, the Reserve Police Battalion deported 11,000 Jews, 10 times as many as they had killed at Josephau. And it didn't stop there either. In late September, the men participated in multiple shootings at Serokomla, Tauken, and Kok. Some of them were Jews, others retaliatory killings against the Polish resistance. They were much more personal, something more like the face-to-face of Josephau, but there was very little resistance at this point. If anything, they complained about how their new commander, Captain Wolof, wasn't even present at the killings. Deportations resumed in late September again, and ramped up through October and early November. For most policemen, their memory of this time was a blur. It was hard for any particular moments to stand out. There were some shootings that followed a similar pattern at Josephau, but by this point, distance mattered less and less. Once a man has killed 100, 200, 300, what's the difference between loading them on a train to die shooting them in a pit from 50 yards, or shooting them in the back of the head, at two feet. Only the most memorable moments remained in the minds of the policemen. One incident that many remember is their action at Kanskawola. There, the whole ghetto was sick with dysentery, many of them begging to be shot, in their beds. Quote, A group of five or six policemen were assigned to enter the ghetto hospital and liquidate the 40 or 50 patients. In any case, almost all of them were extremely emaciated and totally undernourished. One could say that they consisted of nothing but skin and bones. No doubt, hoping to escape the smell as quickly as possible, the policemen opened fire wildly as soon as they entered the room. Under the hail of bullets, bodies toppled from the upper bunks. End quote. Some of the men became sick from the action. Another man remembers chatting with a German Jew from Munich as he awaited to be shot before he was led away. In mid-November, most of the towns and ghettos had been cleared out of their district, and the battalion was put on a Jew hunt to find and kill any survivors in hiding. They swept through the forest, finding colonies of 40 to 50 Jews at a time hiding in hovels underneath the earth. Like Josephau, each killing was face to face. They were so common that multiple men referred to it in their interviews as their daily bread. Unlike Josephau, the men were no longer traumatized. They joked about the killings over lunch, exchanged stories. One man joked, quote, Now we eat the brains of slaughtered Jews, end quote. Men volunteered to go forward. Those that were still apprehensive remained silent and tried to stay out of sight when the Jew hunt patrol was organized. If they were forced into the patrol, they often participated, though. Very few refused outright. Another small group would not shoot, only if no other officers or men were nearby. This continued through the spring. Again, only the most memorable recollections stood out. In one case, a group of Jews in a cellar who were armed engaged in a firefight with the policemen. The owner of the cellar was tracked to her father's house nearby. Her father was given a choice. Surrender his life or his daughter's. He surrendered his daughter. She was shot in front of him. It's important to note that these are not singular massacres. They're part of a daily practice by now. Browning calls it, quote, an existential condition of constant readiness and intention to kill every last Jew who could be found, end quote. 
in the spring, the men of the battalion are so desensitized to killing that their last major actions, known as Urtefest, the harvest festival for how many humans they killed, was memorable only in its size. 42,000 Jews were killed in a single operation in November of 1943, the second largest massacre of the war besides October 1941's Romanian massacre with 50,000 Jews. By the end of 1943, when Reserve Police Battalion had finally cleared the Lublin district of Poland of all Jews, they had participated in the direct shootings of at least 38,000 Jews. They had deported some 45,000 to Dreblinka to be killed. 500 men. 500 men had killed at least 83,000 innocent human beings. If we average this out to each man, that is 166 killed per policeman. And we know that many policemen participated much more than others. It's completely conceivable that some men alone killed 500 or more Jews. The battalion would fight Russians by the end of the war, but most of them returned home to their families. In 1948, an investigation found Trapp and another policeman guilty of the reprisal shooting of 78 Poles in Talkin. They were executed in December of 1948, and two other men were sentenced up to eight years in prison. In the 1960s, more investigations indicted 14 other men, but few of those were convicted. Reserve Police Battalion 101's actions after Josephow cannot be explained as easily as that first massacre when they were just given that one choice. As we've pointed out, distancing oneself from murder is an easy way to desensitize people to murder. To be honest, it's a lot like combat. I've never been in combat, I can't make any claim to know what it's like besides other people's experiences, but for everyone I've talked to and interviewed and every account I've read, there's a difference between a man pulling a trigger from a drone and obliterating someone with a missile from 30,000 feet versus bayoneting someone with their body pressed against yours. Everything in between those extremes is linear. If you want to teach a man to kill innocent human beings, to forgo morality, it takes two things. An initial push, like that one at Josephow, and then some psychological distance. Browning notes, quote, once the killings began, the men became increasingly brutalized. As in combat, the horrors of the initial encounter eventually became routine, and the killing became progressively easier. In this sense, brutalization was not the cause, but the effect of these men's behavior. End quote. But I think it's important to characterize that this was not combat. Also, that these men are not the desk murderers either, like many of the men in the Holocaust, the people who would just sign away the deaths. They were combining calculated mass murder at a very personal distance. Moreover, they're the last people you would choose for carrying out the final solution. Middle-aged, married, working class? Not quite the young, single patriotic men you think of when you think of somebody enlisting for the SS. Some psychologists have argued that this group is, quote, particularly susceptible to anti-democratic propaganda. In other words, people who believe in the authoritarian personality, rigid adherence to conventional values, submissiveness to authority figures, aggressiveness towards outgroups, opposition to introspection, reflection and creativity, a tendency to superstition and stereotyping, preoccupation with power, 
and toughness, destructiveness and cynicism, projectivity, the disposition to believe that wild and dangerous things go on in the world, and the projection of an outward, unconscious, emotional impulse and exaggerated concern with sexuality. End quote. Reading that, I'm really tempted to point out that those are all facets of the authoritarian right and the Trump base. To be fair, it's not the right that is important here. It's how much people are predisposed towards authoritarianism. So for every Donald Trump or Margaret Thatcher on the right, there's a Mao Zedong or a Fidel Castro on the left. And honestly, I think that argument might hold some water, but it's still bullshit. It's bullshit because it covers up the honest fact that people who claim that it's the other side, they're the ones who would do such awful acts, not me, not my side, they're lying. It's not political party that matters here. Look throughout history, you can find it on every single part of the political compass. It's introspection. You want to know why I study history? Why it is that the study of history that I do is really fucked up, it's violent, it's horrifying, it's macabre. It's not because I'm entertained by it. There's a reason I had to spend a whole week extra doing this one, because it really hurts my mental health. Honestly, though, I do it because history gives us introspection. It doesn't just give us perspective, it forces us to confront ourselves and who we are as human beings. It forces us to confront the fact that any of us could be one of those men who didn't make the right choice at Joseph Howe. I'm one of those people who would totally say that I would probably be one of those cowards. And that's what history makes you do. It makes you contemplate where you would be. So I'm addressing you. Put everything aside for a moment. Put aside whatever makes you better than anybody else, whatever makes you dismiss any argument for any reason. Your politics, your science, your patriotism, your intelligence, your religion, your lack of religion, your common sense, your friends, your family. Just be human. Be honest with yourself. Be open. Be introspective. That's what history makes us do. I'm not asking you to go over scenarios in your head from history and ask yourself, what would I do in that situation? But I do want you to approach history in a way that is introspective, that is beyond any of those things that I just listed, that is simply about what does a human do at a certain place in a certain time when confronted with a certain problem? Because the more you do that, the more you realize that we are all very, very similar. We are all very much closer to being the same. Nobody likes to be the one to admit that Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler are a lot closer on the scale than we like to believe. But the fact of the matter is, is that they are. And you can disagree with me on that, that's fine. But that's what I've figured out from history. The reason I study history is to make sure that I remind myself of that fact daily. So that I don't end up making the wrong decisions. And when I do, I don't snowball myself into worse ones. I hope you can use history to do the same. And I hope next week that we'll have some content that's at least a little more uplifting than this one.